All right, well, in typical NBA fashion, about 45 minutes after Kevin Pelton and I wrapped the podcast you are about to listen to, Giannis Attentacumpo, holy smokes, a few hours before his deadline to do so, he did the thing that he said he was almost certainly not going to do, which was extend now, this season, three years, $186 million to remain with the Milwaukee Bucks. His deal now, with according to Bobby Marks, has a player option for 2027 to 28, kind of aligns in that sense with Damian Lillard, who has a player option for 26-27. Wow. Well, look, I said... When Giannis made those comments first to the New York Times and then to the 48 Minutes podcast with his old Milwaukee Bucks co-worker, Ross Geiger and company, the most public expressions of uncertainty he's ever uttered um, about whether Milwaukee was the place he thought he could win enough to commit long-term. To his credit, it's always been about, I want to win. It's not about geography, not about market. It's about winning. The Bucks had obviously been through the same extension uncertainty before. They solved it with a mega trade for Drew Holiday that convinced Giannis, yeah, yeah, they're serious enough. I'm staying. Then they won the first title in the history of the franchise in 50 years. First title since Oscar Robertson and Kareem, 1971. Here they are again. And look, to the Bucks' credit, internally, I think they were worried, but like um, uh, reasonably worried. The kind of worry that doesn't, affect your judgment, doesn't cloud your judgment, doesn't make you panic. The kind of worry you should feel when you have one of the greatest players of all time, that's what Giannis is going to be, on your team for a finite period of time in his prime, telling you privately and publicly what happened last year against the Heat wasn't good enough. We got to do better. I don't know what that means. I'm not going to get involved in the decision-making. And to his credit, he says, I, I, want, I don't want to be a part of it. I don't want names. I don't want suggestions. I certainly do not want to approve any trade that sends Drew Holiday, a champion, a winner, out of here. But what's been going on in the playoffs is not quite good enough. Uh, Second-round loss, first-round loss. Although the second-round loss was without Chris Middleton in a really game effort against the Celtics. Um, to, to the Bucks' credit, they said... Privately, publicly, anytime you talk to him, hey, this is what he's telling us internally. Like, you guys in the media can make a big deal out of him saying it publicly. We already know this. This isn't that. This isn't earth-shattering to us. Now, to me, to hear him voice it publicly was a big deal. It was a, a certain line of demarcation. But the Bucks responded in a huge way. Credit John Horst and their brain trust. I didn't think they had the goods to go out and get Damian Lillard. They did. And this is the whole reason why. This is, this is the whole thing is Giannis. Convincing Giannis to stay now becomes, if I said his comments were the biggest story of the offseason, his extension is now the biggest story of the season and will remain so for quite some time. This is a top two player with ambitions of reclaiming his throne as the number one guy in the league. He's not even 30. He is the reason they have the Deer District, the new arena, everything. It's all him. He is the whole thing. Whatever results in him signing on to be on your team for a longer period of time, we know, yeah, sure, you can. players can demand a trade. We've seen people sign and demand a trade. Nothing is ever certain, blah, blah, blah. Huge win. He clearly wants to be in Milwaukee. This is the whole thing for the Bucks. It also gives them a little bit of certainty this year, which I think is valuable. They don't have to play the whole year, even though the Dame trade 
kind of quieted whatever concerns had come up in, in, in Giannis's public comments. Now this puts the whole storyline to bed. They don't have to answer any questions about it. They don't have to worry about it. After a three-game losing streak, a five-game losing streak, Dame's underperforming for a month, someone sprains an ankle, whatever. They don't have to worry about any of it. They can go play free. And as you will see later in the podcast, I did not pick them to win the title this year as I did in previous years. But I think this matters. It, I, I'm not going to sit here and reconsider the pick or anything, but I think it matters. I think it's helpful. And boy, is it a blow for all of the teams who really got excited when Giannis made those comments. Who started saying, all right, what do we got in our back pocket? How many extra picks we got? Okay. All right. Well, let's just bide our time. Looks like, looks like we might... Looks like we might be able to get into business in a year, six months, eight months. To, I thought maybe 10 months at the earliest offseason. And we all know the teams, you know, all the teams with big markets, all the teams with big ambitions, all the teams with big markets plus draft picks. The Knicks have a million draft picks plus control part of the Bucks 2025 pick and have been quietly star hunting for a while now. The Warriors and Giannis have been linked forever. The Lakers will always come up even though they're asset poor compared to these other teams. Um, but no team had a worse summer in this regard than the Heat, uh, the Miami Heat, who didn't get Dame after not getting Bradley Beal, which I think was partly their choice. Um, and like they always do, like all these other teams, just reading the tea leaves, thought, hey, maybe maybe we can get in there. Toronto's been linked to him before. All the teams, you name them. But no team has seen the player movement carousel go more poorly for them, go worse for them than Miami Heat. This summer. And look, they're going to do what the Heat do. They're going to dig out of it and find three guys in the G League who will become starting level players somehow. That's what they do. They're going to win more in the playoffs than they do in the regular season. That's what they do. But there are a lot of teams now who have one avenue that they thought, that they hoped at least would be open to them that is now closed. And Milwaukee has a clear runway now to see what this team is, see how good it can be. Win without drama, without anxiety, without nervousness, any of it. What a what a day for the Bucks! I, we, I feel like we've had said this exact same thing before, but man, they just keep on doing it. They keep on doing it, and this is what you do: draft picks out the door, whatever, whatever you've got to do to get that guy on the dotted line. Um, you do it's, it, and now you know as we talk about the stars that are maybe less on the market or even less potentially on the market than they were more and more eyes turn to Philly now. Um, and how this season goes, how this hardened situation resolves, Kevin and I talk about that a little bit and what it all means for the guy who just won the MVP. Um, but we have a long season to go. Uh, again, I said his comments, Giannis's comments were the biggest story of the summer. It felt fitting to, to reconvene the whole podcast production crew, Sans Pelton, and and talk about this. It's a big, big moment for the Bucks. They swung hard at Damian Lillard. The team is going to be awesome. Whether they fulfill a championship destiny or not remains to be seen. You need luck. You need health. You need all that stuff. But uh, this is the whole reason the Bucks exist right now. They have this dude on the team for as long as possible. What a win for the Bucks! What a win for smaller markets in the NBA. Again. Um, really exciting times in Milwaukee. Congratulations to the Bucks and their fans. And now let's get on with season predictions with Kevin Pelton. And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast. We're recording on Monday afternoon, but by the time you listen to this, it will be 
opening day of the 2023-2024 NBA season. The Denver Nuggets beginning their title defense by hosting the Los Angeles Lakers for Ring Night. And if you don't think the Lakers are a little, a little peeved about being the Ring Night patsies, you don't know the Los Angeles Lakers all that well. And now it's time for predictions. It's time to predict every award, to get crazy, to predict champions, to predict finalists. And I thought a perfect person to do this would be the king of win projections, Kevin Pelton, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. I'm glad to hear you're doing well. And we got a lot of extensions to talk about, too. As, as The deadline is still, I think, an hour and 15 minutes away as we're recording this. We've had, just in the last couple of days, Zeke Naji, Jaden McDaniels, woo, Josh Green, Cole Anthony, Aaron Neesmith, Denny Avdia, and maybe somebody that I'm forgetting. Those will come up in context. Mr. Pelton, are you ready for the NBA season? I am. I mean, why isn't... Tuesday night a, a holiday, a national holiday, just allow us to really get fully prepared for, especially the ring ceremony. It's uh, unusual. We've, you know, the West teams often win. So I feel like we usually get the ring ceremony between the two games on opening night on TNT. It's going to be un- a little unusual to have a ring ceremony before the first game. You know, I was talking to someone with the Lakers about this a couple weeks ago. You know, they're the Lakers. There's a, there's a, they're a dignified, accomplished organization. They don't want to be anybody's patsies and i said to this person do you remember what oklahoma city did to you guys when lebron broke the scoring record they completely ruined the night they they destroyed you on the road so just go do that to denver ruin their night i mean look you know turnabout is fair play other teams have had to do that to the lakers a long period of time i don't think they were thrilled about it either and the other element of it is this is nice because both teams get to play the like, you know, grumpy with the schedule card, because in Denver's case, it's the fact that all the market is focused on the other three teams on opening night and not on the defending champions with the two time MVP. Oh, we're going to talk about that two time MVP, but we're not going to go there. Let's start with what I suspect will be the most anticlimactic awards prediction. Kevin Pelton, your 2024 NBA Rookie of the Year. I mean, it's it's Wemby, although, you know, I, I posted yesterday the wins above replacement player leaders by my metric in the preseason, and Chet and Wemby were right there neck and neck with each other, both in the top 20 in the entire league. I'm a little surprised that Chet is still behind Scoot Henderson in the uh, the odds that I'm using from, from Caesars Sportsbook by William Hill. Like, you know, it's going to be, I think... Uh, a long season for Scoot. He's going to put up a lot of points, going to put up counting stats. And true, that is traditionally what wins Rookie of the Year, as, as I've shown in the past. It's you know pretty well predicted by the combination of points, rebounds, and assists per game. But in a situation where you have these two guys who are both potential game-changing defenders in year one, I don't know that that, uh, that rule applies. So I think those are the top two favorites, but you, you do probably have to go Wemby. You know, KP, over the weekend... I checked the Vegas over-unders just, just one last time because I wanted to see if the Spurs number moved at all in the wake of what Wembenyama did in the preseason. It didn't really. It was still, I don't wherever it was, that's where it was. Because I'm watching him and I'm like, I'm starting to get a little wary that this dude may be so good right out of the, right out of the hatch that this team that we have, what, what is their over-under? It's like 28 and a half or something, right? I think it was 29 and a half when we did it before. That maybe this is a team that can get up to 35, 36, start pestering some of the play-in teams. Because look, I mean, 
If this defense is anything like what he's going to do in the regular season, he's going to walk in the door as a top 12 to 15 defensive player in the world. And like that may be wildly underselling it. Offensively, I kind of expected him to be a little more ragged and inefficient than he's been. And there will def- there's going to be like a month where he shoots 19% from three. Like that's going to happen. But he looks ahead of schedule on offense. And it's not like they're bereft of decent NBA players, Trey Jones, Devin Vassell, Keldon Johnson, all probably in the starting five, along with newly extended Zach Collins, two years, 35, a veteran extension. Off the bench, you got some guys, Sohan, Doug McDermott, Jetty Osman, Mamu. We'll see who plays out of those guys. Like, that's, if this dude is that good, do you, are you reevaluating where you have the Spurs, or are you just like young teams equal bad, even when they have guys like this? I'm 100% reevaluating. I mean, I think part of the question is how San Antonio plays it. You know, my projections have baked in load management games for basically all of their key players after we saw that last season. But yeah, I mean, if they get off to a fast start and they're like, well, maybe we don't have a realistic chance, uh, you know, being one of the top five teams going into the lottery. Let's see if we can't sneak into the play in and start playing, you know, guys every night and I don't think you're going to extend their minutes too much because they're still thinking long term. But if if they make the play in their priority and you know being competitive for that, like that's not out of the realm of possibility. The the defense, I want to talk more about it later. Uh, a little tease here, but ooh, spicy. Yeah. Uh, when when they with Jeremy Sohan out there at point guard, the lineup that they've been using in the preseason to start, like there's nobody smaller than what's Vassell six five. A long-limbed 6'5 is the shortest player they have on the court. And they're flying around out there. That lineup is too fun. It's too fun. <laughs> it's I didn't think Greg Popovich was going to get that fun this fast. Um, Malachi Branham, I forgot to mention him. He's like in my long list for most improved player candidates. Like He's going to get real minutes. He averaged 10 points a game last year quietly. I'm beginning to reevaluate the Spurs. I don't quite know. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but this dude is obviously incredible. Yeah. Uh, also, my pick for rookie of the year, Victor Wembanyama. Um, yeah, same, same choice. I, I did right. think Friday was kind of the most. It looked like what I expected offensively, where you know he pulled one three from like 28 feet on a catch and shoot because of the fact that Andrew Wiggins had his hand down and was like, you know, firing in transition threes. That was kind of the shot selection I was expecting a little from Wemonyama, but his efficiency in the preseason overall has been terrific. Who did he block where he just blotted out the sun on this poor guy? Like the ball, the ball didn't even, it's not that like there are some blocks where the ball doesn't even get out of your hand. This was one where it's like your hand doesn't even begin the shooting motion properly, and he's already going the other way. I don't know. I'm a poor guy. I don't know who it was. I'm just glad that uh, Mina Kimes, our ESPN colleague, has on Twitter endorsed the Sunblocker is Wemby's defensive nickname after the Mr. Burns reference. I, I got to catch up with Mina where she is on her Nets fandom because that, that didn't work out for her when she went all in on the Kyrie <laughs> KD Nets. This is going to be her team. Bruce Brown was her guy. Um Hi, Mina. Uh, how are you? Uh, okay. Let's go to a Meteor Award. Uh, most valuable player, Kevin Pelton. Your your selection for most valuable... Your prediction, not selection, for most valuable player of the 2024 NBA season is... Look, don't don't tell the, the listeners. I think they think we've already made up our minds about who we're going to give the award to before the season starts. But uh, no, I, I 
for fun yesterday ran kind of if you look at the the formula that i've used to predict mvp which is like your rank in my wins above replacement player metric and your rank in terms of team wins the average of those two has predicted it pretty well it pops out an interesting result which is jason tatum and he was very high on this list last year i think he may have been number one in it last year and wasn't a serious contender i i don't know if he can in terms of just the perception and the box score stats get as high as that Giannis, Jokic, Embiid group that has been the top three uh, the last two years. But if, if I was picking one based on the lines where I think he's eight to one to win the award at Caesar Sportsbook, he would be my money. My pick is Jason Tatum. I think it's going to be a two-man race. Not two-man race. There's gonna, all these guys are going to be in it. I, I came down to Tatum and Jokic because I think Jokic... There's going to be this lingering sense of, okay, he didn't get the award last year and then he just rampaged the entire playoffs. There's an almost universal recognition that he is the best player and by an, a decent amount, the best offensive player. Although Steph, I think, would have an argument in that, in that discussion to some, to some degree. Um, I think the Celtics are going to have the best record in the East and probably the best record in the NBA. Tatum is going to be recognized universally as the best player on that team, the engine that makes it go. He's healthy after the wrist thing that he had in the playoffs last year, late in the season. And I have to say, I think he's noticed, and I've certainly noticed, that in these like GM survey things and other survey, like best player you want to start with, uh, start your team with for the next five years, best player over the next half decade, blah, blah, blah. He he's finishing a little lower in those than I would have imagined. I think he was like in the also receiving a vote category where they just like the teams who don't make the top 25 in college basketball. It's like also receiving votes. Here's this pile of dudes. He was in that for one of the GM survey questions. I think he's going to have a monster year. Here's my hesitation one by one with some of the other candidates. Jokic. I kind of feel like Jokic is going to spend this year trying to help Jamal Murray make the All-NBA team and help Michael Porter Jr. get better and just just be like, just have a little fun out there. Let's Can I average like, and he might still win the MVP if he averages like 25, 11 and whatever and shoots 60%. Giannis was a tough one because unlike Booker and Durant, who I think are seen as roughly equivalent players who will maybe cancel each other out to some degree, I think Giannis is seen as the clearly superior guy in the Dame-Giannis partnership, and the Bucks are going to win a ton of games. Embiid, I just don't know what the hell is going to happen with Philadelphia this year. I don't know. And there might be a lingering among some voters, like, is he ever going to put it all together in the playoffs? Like, we, a lot of the eggs were in that basket last year, and the basket, like, fell, and, fell apart, and the eggs all cracked. Did you think about Shea Gillis Alexander at all? I don't think I can quite get there. I mean, we also talked about I'm a little lower on OKC's wins total this season than most. That's also probably the reason that Luka Doncic, even though, you know, I think he's got the ability in terms of... I forgot about I forgot value. to mention him. Yes, go ahead. Please say it so I don't have to. Yeah, he's got the ability in terms of individual value to crack into that top three that has been impended over the last couple of years. But, you know, just is the team going to be good enough to justify it? I think Shea, like if you're looking talking about Who's the next first time winner of the award? Shea's probably a solid number two on that list after Jason Tatum. Maybe maybe Anthony Edwards number three. Is that can we agree on that as a top three? Sure. Wembenyama. <laughs> it's not inconceivable. <laughs> I I I perhaps am not am guilty of maybe not considering Steph 
seriously enough. Um, Because I think Golden State will be very good, and he is the engine that makes the whole thing go, obviously. I mean, the other thing we haven't talked about yet is what's the impact of the 65-game minimum going to be on these awards? And Jason Tatum is the safest bet among the favorites to play 65 games, I think you have to say. I'm going Tatum. I just think he's going to have a huge year. It's, I mean, Jokic is just, no, no matter how he approaches the game, if he does decide to approach it from a, hey, let me get this guy going, let me get that guy going, let me cruise a little bit through the regular season, he's just going to be so statistically unassailable. Like, he just every year is breaking every database that exists with efficiency and passing. So he will be a tough, if Denver is number one or number two in the West again, he will be a very hard candidate to unseat. I want to go back to the Spurs for a second because you said something about their their how they aim toward the end of the season. If they aim for the lottery or aim for the play and they 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 do have to face the question of like is this going to be our last ever shot at one more good draft pick, top draft pick around Wembenyama. They also have to face the sort of unpleasant-ish reality that the first round pick the Hornets owe them, which is lottery protected this year and next year is at extremely high risk of converting to a second-round pick in a couple of years. So it's not the asset that it once was. Um, So we both picked Jason Tatum. Wow. Yeah, I guess it's hard to be unconventional with that pick if we both pick it. Well, I I thought I was going to be a little unconventional. I mean, then you get down the list. It's like Donovan Mitchell. I don't. He's not going to win. Trey Young, De'Aaron Fox. Like we're already down into just not going to win territory. I always want to throw up Jimmy Butler as like a Cinderella under the radar candidate because his advanced numbers are just always off the charts. Good sixty-five games. It's it's going to come into play, and not sure the Heat. Even in a year where the standings are going to be compressed to some degree, particularly in the West, I'm not sure the Heat are going to win enough. Which one would you like to do next? Well, should we should we go with what I teased earlier? Yeah, defensive player of the year. I mean, I it, I had to at least look up. So no rookie has ever won defensive player of the year. No rookie has even ever made all defensive first team in the NBA. The only time wow. it's happened apparently is Bobby Jones in the ABA did it in his first season. Uh, Alvin Robertson won in his second year defensive player of the year. So it would be unprecedented if Victor Wembanyama were to do this. But, I mean, you watch him defensively in the preseason. And maybe teams will adjust to a degree. Like, the Warriors seemed particularly on Friday night caught off guard by Wembanyama's ability to block their shots, even though he wasn't as close as players who usually are going to challenge your shots are. Uh, I, I do think teams will adjust, players will adjust to that to a degree over time. But he's just able to do things that no one else can. I mean, you know, he he was defending Andrew Wiggins much of the game on Friday night. And he's like, you know, a foot in the paint. And he's still one step away from being out there and blocking a shot. I think it was Clay Thompson who pump faked. Weminyama was in the paint. Someone else was also out there. And Weminyama closes enough ground in that period of time to block his shot completely clean. I his block radius, his help radius is bigger than any player in NBA history. And I guess the one comparison we didn't make when we talked about him largely defending power forwards the last time I was on after his debut is it's kind of like Robert Williams III when Boston used him in that role alongside Al Horford, where 
those two guys both have a special ability to, you know, cover a lot of ground, close the out to block three pointers. I mean, it seems like a lock if he plays enough that Wemby is going to set the all time record for blocked three pointers. I don't know whether Williams or, or Mitchell Robinson or Matisse Thibel, it's got to be one of those three holds the record, but I, I have not looked that up. And yeah, I mean, I don't think San Antonio is going to be good enough defensively for him probably to win the award, but I it's a fun prediction. Out. Yeah. Uh, he will definitely lead the league in the number of times I want to freeze frame the shooter's face in midair as he <laughs> realizes that this guy is actually going to come make an honest try at blocking his shot. And my, oh, oh, there's going to be a lot of that for those who are not, not watching. I'm making a, a scared face. Um, I, You know, look, and the, the thing, like, if he's going to play a lot of four, and you mentioned he's been guarding wings for a lot of this preseason with Zach Collins, starting at the five and guarding the, the screen setters, the, the, like it was just going to be interesting to see how impactful he could be away from the ball. Because remember, like four or five years ago, you had this whole idea that teams were trying to eliminate Kawhi Leonard's defensive impact by like just having his guy stand away away from the play in the corner and just do nothing. So he just has to stand over there. And uh, it turns out that doesn't really work with Wembenya. I don't think it re- worked with Leonard, but definitely does not work with a guy who has an eight-foot wingspan and could just be everywhere all the time. He's been enormously impactful in every possible way. No rookie. I mean, I'm looking at Tim Duncan was my first guess, second team all defense as a rookie to throw the Spurs thing full circle. I don't hate it. I don't hate I- it. He He's, again, where I'm placing my money. If I'm actually picking one player to win it, I think I'm going Evan Mobley. That's an interesting one because I, I almost voted for him last season as just a volume candidate because Jaron Jackson Jr.'s minutes were so limited and Anthony Davis missed games. And the more, so I watched his last 15 to 20 games really closely. And the more, I, the more closely I watched, the more I was like, he just, he's physically not quite as imposing as he needs to be to really be this dominant a defender. To like, to, for us to want to go look back and be like, this guy was the single best defensive player of the year that year. I didn't love voting for Jackson because the minutes were just so limited, and then Team USA was just like an utter disaster for him. Not that it really matters. Uh, my prediction for Defensive Player of the Year. Oh, interestingly, by the way, I'm about to bring up the 65 game minimum. You're betting big on Wembenyama playing a lot of games by by nominating him for this award versus Rookie of the Year. This this does not apply. Correct. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see. I just don't have any really good feel for how San Antonio is going to use him. Like, you know, he is not subject to the player participation policy unless he makes the all-star game. He would then be subject to it after that. But, you know, the fact that he's the number one pick and uh, all that hype does not, is not quantified in the, the rule as it's currently written. I am picking Anthony Davis who has never won this award before. Obviously, Seems to miss games every season to varying degrees that will impact his candidacy. I just, it's the carryover effect of the postseason for me. I I thought he was utterly dominant in every possible way, no matter how teams tried to scheme him out of the play, like I just talked about with Kawhi, get him out of the paint, have him guard a shooter, have him guard whoever. Have him him run up to corral one Steph Curry pick and roll, then sag back to corral a back cut, and then have to run back up for Steph again, and he was doing it. About as well as possible, Lakers are going to be a pretty solid team at worst. I th- they have, they're one of the six or seven teams I think can, can win the title. They profile as a really strong defensive team. 
I'm going Anthony Davis. This is the year he puts it all together on the defensive side of the ball. Did you consider him? Not that he's never put it all together, but the the effort, the health, whatever. I'm just I just thought he was a fun pick. For sure. Yeah. I mean, he has to be considered because as you said, he was clearly the best defensive player in the playoffs. And I do think that matters for the same reasons that we, we talked about with Jokic's play after not getting MVP matters. Uh, I, you know, whether he's going to be that locked in and focused over an 82 game regular season, whether he's going to play enough games. And then I think the in- third interesting question is how different is his offensive role this year? Because if, if LeBron is serious about you know, Anthony Davis being the the face of the team and want to shift him to more of a primary offensive role. Does that limit to some degree his defensive effort during the regular season? Well, why you got to do that to me? I was getting all <laughs> excited about Anthony Davis, defensive player of the year. I thought I, th- I thought we were hearing both sides here. There's only room for one. Uh, who else who else came up in your I mean, you got the Brooke Lopez, Giannis double double tag team in Milwaukee. I, I just I, I kind of want Bam to win it one year, um, and obviously Jaron Jackson Jr. Um, you know, we'll see if he can repeat what he did. He'll have a bigger offensive role this year for a team that we we should probably t- talk about Memphis right now. My editors and Mr. Bill Simmons, due to text exchanges, will attest that I was already set to put Memphis in a tier below where the win projections had them in my tiers power rankings column, which is coming out tomorrow. Bill and I were texting about our mutual sort of just mutual and, and couldn't quite put our fingers on why we were a little bit more pessimistic about Memphis other than obviously Morant was missing time. Part of the reason was there had been rumblings from once that Steven Adams wasn't quite right. And yesterday it was announced that he will undergo knee surgery and miss the entire year. I was already a little concerned about Memphis's depth without Brandon Clark for a, at least a big part of the season. And they just have all these mystery box guys who they're going to count on for minutes. And everyone they throw in seems to play well. But like it's getting kind of mysterious, the mystery box. And the Laravias and Loftons and Roddies and Aldamas and Kennard, who doesn't feel like a mystery, but he loses the trust of his coaching staff every single year. He ends up like in and out of the rotation. I just think you take away Adams now on top of Clark. Tillman may have to start. I just think it's reaching like critical depth period for Memphis. And by the way, the tier that I have them in is not like miss the playoffs, bottom of the play, and it's just not a lock for a top six seed. And I had them in there already. I saw Hollinger updated his win projections over the weekend, and, and he had Memphis won and said it takes them down to like the five, six-ish range. Did you did you do the same thing? Because I'm, it's reaching like... A critical point. It wasn't quite as dramatic a jump. It was just from first to third and a difference about two wins after the the Adams injury and, and taking his minutes and giving them mostly to Tillman, to, to Lofton, and then also some to uh, Santi Aldama playing more four alongside Jaron Jackson Jr. And uh, little Zaire Williams got a few extra minutes because it seems like he's the, the best bet at this point to emerge from that mystery box group that you were talking about and play a larger role. Yeah, I, I think the the maybe the bigger issue is just like sheer number of guys available on the roster or, you know, guys you trust on the roster. If you're down Morant for 25 games and Clark for that period of time, you know, for almost certainly the entire first half of the season, maybe a little beyond that. And then Adams, the entire season, they are able to sign a player after I think it's five games that John Morant is suspended. They can add a 16th player it seemed beforehand that would probably that spot was earmarked for another guard 
Uh, they got Jacob Gilliard on a two-way as their only like real point guard behind Marcus Smart and Derrick Rose. Now it seems like they probably have to sign a center in that spot and you know try to find some depth that way. Now they do have the ability to go out and make a move midseason, and that's where Kennard is maybe really important because he's also their only expiring salary. So, you know, they could do something with uh, you know, I saw Chris Harrington mentioned with Adams and Brandon Clark as possibilities, but you know, I think that those are a little bit diff- more difficult for another team to swallow than if you're sending them back Luke Kennard with a team option for next year that makes him functionally an expiring deal. Yeah, I, I saw John Hollinger mention like Robert Williams the third, Jonas Valanciunas, like like the Adams plus something package to get one of those guys as a as a not a stopgap. I mean, those guys are good players as, a, as an answer to a question for a team that I think really does want to win big this year and kind of steady the ship a little bit. The other thing is like everyone says Morant's missing 25 games and we all know their record without Morant has been pretty good. I think a couple of things about that are overstated. Last year it was only 11 and 10. It, it, like, the year they just destroyed without Morant was two seasons ago when they were just outrageously good. 11 and, and, 10, and outrageously lucky in terms of opponent three-point shooting in those games. 11 and 10 last year, Tyus Jones was, was, you know, holding down the position. Obviously, they have Marcus Smart now, different kind of player. They're going to have to figure out kind of a new style, identity. Um, the other, it, you just flip like 11 and 10 if it's 25 games. If, it, if that becomes 11 and 14, like th- that matters a lot. In a, that could be the difference between third and ninth in the Western Conference. The other thing is, it's not like you just pen in Morant plays 57 games. Everybody misses games. And if there's one takeaway I had from the Baxter Holmes to McMahon piece on Morant last week, which got a lot of attention, it's like, I'm, I'm a, like that, that thing was filled with anonymous team sources. They were identified as team sources, team whatever. I didn't inquire with Tim and Baxter who's who and who's what because that's their reporting, that's their thing. But I took that as people who are currently with the team. It didn't say former team officials, just team officials, team source, team whatever, are like pretty freaking concerned that who knows like if there's another another event that takes place. Like so I'm just I was already pessimistic on Memphis. Now I'm like I don't know. I, the play-in seems reasonable. I don't know. I, I'm still. If you're saying they they lost three wins or two wins, Hollinger had them down to five. I, I think that's. I still think that's too optimistic given the current predicament. But again, I was wrong about them last year and the year before. I, I will say the one thing about that eleven and ten. You know, I don't know the exact breakdown, but a lot of those games were also after Brandon Clark and Stephen Adams were out last year because you'll recall that the the. The incident in Colorado happened in that game. I believe it was where Brandon Clark suffered the Achilles injury was in that loss to the Nuggets. That's my Memphis spiel. They're probably going to prove me wrong and go 52. And um... I'm a a lot less confident in the the over, which was one of my strongest picks the last time I was on here. That's safe to say. Okay. How about coach of the year? All right. Well, that segues in. Because you know who's got a lot of adversity to overcome now? Taylor Jenkins. I think I'm, he's my pick. I mean, it's kind of a weird award because you're predicting who's going to surprise us. And if it if you can predict it, it shouldn't be surprising to us. But that that's where I'm going. I don't even I think we just kind of made the case, right? I mean, if they have a good year, he's going to he, he's a very good coach. They play a, a pretty smart, active. They play to their strengths very well. Um I went with Chris Finch. 
Who didn't receive... I don't think he received any voting points. I mean, Mike Brown got all the first place votes last year. Could win it again. Who knows? There's enough skepticism about the Kings that if they outperform again, he'll be right there. I thought a lot about Mark Dagnall, Quinn Snyder, Nick Nurse, if he stabilizes or whatever the hell is going on in Philadelphia. Woj reported again, by the way, James Harden's away from the team. I look forward to the daily where is James Harden updates that are about to come through. Um, Joe Mazzula, revamped Celtics, talking about playing a little differently this year, trying to get more pressure on the rim. I like that. I just think the Wolves are good. Um, your projections had them quite high. Hollinger's projections I mean, had them quite high. I mean, they were they were behind Memphis before. Memphis just dropped to third. So Minnesota's number one in the West. That seems a little bit much, but you know, I I like the team. I've said my piece on liking the team. If they have a good year, I think he'll receive a lot of credit for finding ways to make the Towns go bear pairing work, not just offensively, but defensively too. Like when does, when does it make sense for Towns to guard fours? When does it make sense for him to guard fives when he's on fives who are, or screen setters is Gobert over here playing Robert Williams. Like how do they sort that all out? Do you still want cat blitzing or up to the level of the screen when he's on the screeners? That's all to be sorted out. I just like the talent on their team, but I will say, in the wake of the Jaden McDaniels extension, which is now three, uh, five years, $136 million, which is about what Bobby Marks and I thought it would come in at. You know, obviously, the writing was already on the wall. Now it's like graffiti on the wall, spray paint on the wall. The team is going to be too expensive long-term to keep together. We all know what the possible shoes to drop in that regard are. I don't think, cutting against my Chris Finch prediction... I don't think any team has more riding on the first 20 games than the Wolves. I think they have to get off to a good start because they want to win. They have the talent to win. But if the season begins to go sideways, they now have a lot of incentive to start exploring ways to trade towns and or other methods of sort of softening the financial blow that's coming. And I don't really know that another realistic method even exists other than sussing out the trade market for towns. So, my bet on Finch, my my optimism on the Wolves, is very much contingent that they come out of the gate pretty strong. I would say Cleveland, I feel like, is another team that's got a lot riding on the first, you know, the early part of the season. The Donovan Mitchell thing is, you know, hanging more distantly out in the background, but they're a team that I have high expectations for. I think, you know, if they if they achieve what my projections have for them, which is, you know, I think third in the East, maybe fourth, uh, J.B. Bickerstaff has a chance to be in the conversation for this award for a second straight year. He's but, on my list, but I think the bad taste that that playoff series left in everyone's mouth is going to take him is right. going to take him out of it. But he's on my list. Um, anyway, what's your, any more thoughts on Minnesota and or the McDaniel's uh, extension? Yeah, let's talk about the McDaniel's extension a bit. I mean, I agree with you that it's about what I expected. Uh, you know, agree with everything you and Bobby said on the pod on Friday. I, I think it's a deal that probably is going to age well because people tend to look at these contracts without the context of the fact that the rising cap, assuming that it is going to rise, which I think is maybe a little less certain than it was before, it, it tends to help these and that you're looking at a player at you know age 22, age 23, and we're paying them up through age 27, 28, which is when players tend to develop and, and reach their peak. That's why these extensions tend to be good values on average. Now, but even I would say 
I told you I had an analogy for this. Even if you're a skeptic of this, our, our buddy Seth Partnow is, uh, I, I think that Minnesota couldn't take the risk of the small chance in restricted free agency that some team comes in with a huge team unfriendly offer sheet for Jaden McDaniels. And my analogy for this is where I used to live, I had two options of getting to I-5 North to go to downtown Seattle or, or parts north of that. And one of those went over a bridge. So it was faster when the bridge was down, but when the bridge was up, I was going to be late. A drawbridge. Yeah. And to take the other direction that was safer, but slower, I had to like get my act together enough to leave early and have that extra couple of minutes of buffer. So I wasn't forced to take the the drawbridge knowing that there was a risk that I was going to be like 15 minutes late because I was going to get stuck in traffic if I went on the drawbridge route. And that's sort of where Minnesota is financially. Like it, even if you think you could have squeezed a little more out of Jaden McDaniels by waiting until next summer when he was a restricted free agent, the small chance of that huge offer sheet that now blows up my entire team, whether it's losing Jaden McDaniels or having to make that trade, even if I don't want to, and I've had a great season. So that's why I think they were uniquely positioned to have to make this extension now. He is also um, the exact position where his market is as wide as it gets. Everybody needs big wings who can swing between the three and the four positionally on offense and guard everywhere on defense. He's not a small guard. He's not a big Every team can use a guy like that. And he's, you know, of all the guys who have signed extensions as of now, the only guy kind of near him really in the positional size spectrum is Denny Avdia, who signed a four-year $55 million extension with Washington. And he's obviously far less accomplished than Jaden McDaniels, who averaged 12 games, shot 40% on threes last year, and was a popular all-defense level pick. Denny Avdia is a nice player. He's not that. Josh Green is a wing, but he's a smaller wing. He signed three years, 41. That number is actually a little bigger um, than I thought it would be. But it's actually it's, it's actually not. I take that back. Um, uh, he's not the same size dimension, all that, as, as Jaden McDaniels. Um, that said, I, the three-pointer, we'll see how real it is. You'd like, to, you'd like to assume that with a player so young that the best season being last season indicates an upward trajectory. We'll see. I would like to see him get a rebound. Like, can everybody on the Wolves get some rebounds? Why is this such a bad defensive rebounding team? It drives me absolutely bananas. He has the rebound. Look at his rebounding rate. It's like the rebounding rate of, of like, Muggsy Bogues. You know, it's, it's, an, like it, that, it's like Jeremy Grant disease where these guys, like, are so long and athletic, they don't get any rebounds. Get a rebound. This doesn't quite apply to uh, to, to Pelo Bancaro, but it, it does feel, feel like guys from Seattle, for whatever reason, unusually poor rebounders. Like Jamal Crawford uh, always had a very low rebound rate for relative to the rest of his his game. Obviously, like Isaiah Thomas and Nate Robinson were tiny, but uh, the the Puget Sound area players tend not to be rebounders. I, I guess we we don't practice that for whatever reason. The other guys. Cole Anthony, three years, 39. Neesmith in Indiana, who is this kind of dimensionally similar to Jamie Daniels, but not, not nearly as accomplished. Three years, 33. Josh Green, I mentioned. Those are all in the ballpark that Bobby and I talked about, which is kind of like, okay, here's the mid-level. Take it or leave it. Like, we're not giving you more. You may want more because the cap's going up, but we're take it or leave it. And some of these guys took it. Some of these guys are going to leave it. Did you have strong feelings about any of these other ones? 
No strong feelings. I think it is interesting that, and you and Bobby talked about this a little bit, that we're seeing more of these types of extensions get done than we did in the past. And I, it may be an element of the fact that, you know, the, the NBA salary cap is rising, you know, faster than the inflation as a whole. So therefore, even these, you know, deals that are the same percentage of the salary cap as they were 10 years ago represent more meaningfully life-changing money and players just kind of want to lock that in and, and take that security. Yep. I mean, it's, it's $33 million for Aaron Neesmith, who, if you look at, you know, Rick Carlisle likes him. He started a lot of games last year as a big part of their rotation. Their rotation at his positions uh, is much more crowded this year. Like he's he could fall out of the rotation in five games. He could start out of the rotation. We'll see. Um, the one guy we didn't mention, two guys we didn't mention for coach of the year that I would like to mention. You know what? I'll I'll, I'll brought in it to like five. <laughs> the two main ones are Mark Dagnalt, uh, who finished second last year, and Eric Spolstra, who has never won, and is for the first time in at least a couple of years coaching from a position of perceived not weakness but perceived like oh the heat got to kind of kind of climb an uphill battle this year they lost all these guys from their starting lineup in the playoffs and then i had jamal mosley rick carlisle on the long long list but uh spo should win once in his career and dagnall you know i share as we've talked about some of your you know concerns about being over exuberant about the thunder they're incredibly young Across the board, other than Shea, their depth is really unproven. Like, is, is Trey Mann, is he like a, a rotation player or, you know, what is he? Like, you know, there's a lot of like Usman Jang, like all these guys who are going to get chances. They're very unproven off the bench, but they do kind of have the air. They have the capability of making a big leap. I don't think they will quite get to like the 50 win territory people are projecting. But I can see the more I watch them, the more I see why people think that they have the superstar and their young guys all just play with a certain hunger and all around skill and force that that is even if their skills don't necessarily all mesh perfectly. And we've talked about the giddy question. It does feel like it all works together in a way that's like a big collective crescendo coming but i so i'm trying to temper my expectations but if they do have a year or anything like that mark dagnall may win because he's a damn good coach yeah i mean he's he's going to deserve that credit and, and he's going to get a lot of it and the other thing to your point is like chad homer fits so seamlessly into everything that they were doing last year with those small lineups that you know if he can solve some of the shortcomings that they did have playing that small and still maintain all the strengths that uh you know having four guards out there provides with a fifth guy who can shoot then they, they could be quite good. Let's go to the awards that are always have the, the most candidates, starting with the most, most improved player. This this could just be anybody, but who you, who, are, who is your person and who are some of the other persons that you considered for this award? I mean, I looked at, you know, the other guys that are trendy candidates. Uh, Tyrese Maxey's way up there for sure. My pick is Franz Wagner. I think he's going to have a breakthrough campaign, carry over what he did for Germany. He, he's been terrific in the preseason. So I I think there's a, another level for Franz Wagner to get to. He's on my list. Didn't pick him, and God only who cares, right? It's a preseason most improved <laughs> player projection. Um, event, I will read all the names on my list at some point. I chose Tyrese Maxey 
which is an odd choice in a way because he finished sixth two years ago. So it's like the big leap, according to the voters, like a big leap already happened. Similarly to Jordan Poole, who in the same year he finished fourth, he might average 30 a game this year. And if he does, or 28 or whatever, he's going to get some votes um, in that regard. Uh, But I went with Maxi just because if they hold the fort amid whatever the hell is going on with Harden and whatever happens, a big reason will be because he is goes from a 20-point-a-game guy to like 26-7. and seven. From like 20-4 and four to 26-7 and seven is a huge, huge leap. I think he'd get a huge amount of credit for the Sixers having a better-than-expected year if they do that. So I went with him. Franz Wagner is on the list, though. Um, but it is interesting. Like some of these guys like... Do, do some voters kind of DQ you after you've already had like the cliche most improved year, but you didn't win? Like you're in the top five. Like, does Mikhail Bridges get to be a candidate again? Do we get to Tyrese Halliburton? Does he get to be a candidate again? I don't know how this works. This is the most amorphous award. I mean, on the, I'm on the record as not liking this award. Is is thinking it? You know, the the discussion of it is usually not very helpful at all. I I think, you know, maybe there would be a perception if Bridges' stats improved as compared to his full last season that 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 was improvement but yeah most of that probably already occurred last year austin reeves also is near the top and same thing where you know he's near the top of like the preseason he's uh sixth in the uh the odds here at caesars wow i think he finished see where he finished last year he finished somewhere on some ballots most improved player Austin Reeves. Oh, he only finished tenth last year, so maybe, maybe it's happened too late, and now this will be the year the leap consolidates and even gets bigger. Okay, ready for a deep breath. We should mention Kate Cunningham here, right? He's another. I don't know what pick. to do with guys. It's like Ben Simmons. I like. I don't like Ben Simmons has already been an All NBA player. If he, what happens if you disappear and then come back and you're seventy five percent of that player? Are you most improved or are you just kind of like on the way back? I don't know. I think you're comeback player of the year. You said Which it right. Doesn't in, exist. But but Cunningham can get to a level that he has not played at previously. You know, injury obviously prevented us from seeing what he was in year two, but you know, there is the potential for real improvement there. So I mentioned Ben Simmons. I I almost went with him. I'm just I it it would be a like a rocket ship of a year. Jalen Johnson. Hawks. Yeah, I mean he's he's got the opportunity there. You know, he's played well in the preseason. Your classic third-year guys are Jalen Green, Jonathan Kaminga, who I just can't quit and had a great preseason. And you could make the case for other rock, other young Rockets. Just pick a young Rocket. Um, Josh Giddy. It's just, how much is he going to improve from 16, 8, and 6? Like, that's a case of, like, if the three-pointer comes along, sometimes there's, like, a discrete skill kind of candidate. Um, that could be that, you know, I mentioned Halliburton, Obi Toppin, just an op- the opportunity case, right? Like th- there's always the opportunity guy. I don't, some people are congenitally opposed to second year players. Mark Williams, I think could have a nice second year for the Hornets. Uh, we mentioned the Memphis mystery box guys. I think Jaden McDaniels could be a candidate again. Is he on some of these lists? Like, I, I just don't know how many points are really on the table for the taking for him, and points tend to win these awards. But Quentin Grimes, Max Christie. I'm trying to think who else I have heard. The Denver Bent, like Christian Brown. 
Like they're kind of counting on him. Shaden Sharp, Keegan Murray. Keegan Murray had fourteen a game last year. Like that's why I like it's hard for me to see him really making that big of a jump off of that. There's a lot of guys. Ochai you know, I think the case for Keegan Murray is one of the Sacramento stars goes down and he's forced to shoulder a lot of that offensive load. That's maybe the scenario where he does it. But as you said, uh, a real reluctance for a lot of people to vote second year players, which I don't like. My position is don't add criteria to the awards that don't already exist. Franz Wagner's on my list. Jalen Suggs would be an interesting candidate if he could, if he, you know, this, if he puts it together for any stretch of time and really solidifies himself as a starting level player on offense, he'd be interesting too. But I agree, Franz. Again, it's like he averaged eighteen four and four last year on pretty good shooting. That's a that's a pretty damn good baseline to start with for a most improved case. But it does feel like there's like a twenty three six and six waiting to come out, and and on a team that should be. Uh, at least a little bit more in the discourse this year, which is to say more than almost zero uh, because I, I just can never find any Orlando Magic fans. Shout out Nick Friedel and Kevin Clark. It's very hard to do. Um, any other most improved player candidates you wanted to mention that I didn't just say in my giant monologue of players? We mentioned Scotty Barnes, number number two in, in preseason warp for me. Uh, we did not. Yeah. So, you know, I... We'll see how different his role is with Fred Van Vliet no longer in Toronto. But, you know, another one where if he improves as a shooter, that could be that discrete scroll improvement that kind of carries the day. You know, a guy that I was really excited about for this this award, not to just move on from Scotty Barnes, that's a good one. That should have been mentioned. I just don't know what to make of the Raptors. Trey Murphy III finished seventh last year. Increased his scoring average from five to 14 and a half. He's out some period of time now with the meniscus thing. I think he had or has like from 14 to 18 or 19 kind of thing coming. If he, But again, how much is Zion going to eat into – no the, no pun intended uh, – going to eat into his scoring if he if he plays a lot of games in New Orleans? You know, I, anyway, I, I, but Trey Murphy III was going to be on my list. Sixth man of the year. Is this our? This is our last one, I think. Yeah, depending. Uh, are we doing executive of the year? I, I don't know how we're. No, we're I, don't, the, I don't. I don't. Executive of the year. Executive of the year. No, which, we're not which we do. Then. We as the media do not vote on. Uh, we're not I, doing clutch shooter of the year because predicting that is 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 almost as silly as predicting all these awards. <laughs> uh, I, I'm going Emmanuel quickly, which uh, is. Probably an unsurprising pick after he finished second in the voting last year. And the guy ahead of him got traded to a situation where he's going to play less for a worse team in Malcolm Brogdon. So, you know, I think that Nick's bench has a chance to, again, be a real strength for them. He may split some credit with Josh Hart this year uh, and, and to a lesser degree, Dante DiVincenzo, but quickly cert- certainly fits the profile of the six-man award winner and is uh, a more efficient scorer than some of the players of that elk. Uh, he is on my list, and he was not my pick exactly for the reason you just suggested. I think Hart, in particular Hart, but also DiVincenzo, and even Hartenstein are going to get credit, along with quickly as they should, for like what is going to be a pretty goddamn rollicking Knicks bench. Uh, but he could very well win. I voted for him last year over Malcolm Brogdon, which in the playoffs looked ridiculous. It quickly was not, not very good. And as we are talking now, 
I don't think has been extended. Um, he has not. Um, I went with Norman Powell mostly because I just like shoulder shrug. I couldn't think of any other better candidate. And yes, I'm nervous. You will end up getting traded to the Philadelphia 76ers for James Harden. But I just for fun and kind of because I want to talk about the Clippers went with Norman Powell, who is kind of a central casting sixth man. I thought a lot about Bobby Portis, who was top three or four last year. I think the Bucks are going to need him even more this year. Caruso. I have on my list, whatever Utah guards don't start, whoever among like the Taylor Horton Tucker, Colin Sexton, Jordan Clarkson, just pile of guys that score a lot of points. Whoever doesn't start more than they come off the bench. I have that. Bogdan Bogdanovich, man, never gets any love. That dude is good. That dude is good for a Hawks team that should have a pretty good bench along with the Kongwu. Um, they're all on my list. I went with Nor. How about Caleb Martin? Interesting, yeah. I mean, playoff hero. What about whatever Boston player doesn't start? So Drew Holiday was my choice going in. And I just think it's going to be one of those things where does it become a numbers game where he he starts almost as many games as he comes off the bench? You just have this team of like three or two or three guys who are all kind of hovering around eligibility. He's the obvious choice. He he he. If you told me right now he's coming off the bench three quarters of the season, runaway winner, absolute no brainer, the guy, the best player among all these guys by a significant amount. I just I could see a scenario where he comes off the bench for the first ten games, starts the next twenty. I mean, who knows? Who, who's the last player as good as Drew Holiday to come off the bench regularly? Is it Andre Iguodala early in his Golden State career? Or, yeah, know, it would during, be one of the, in the would, title years. Would it would it have to be off the top of my head? It would have to be one of the sort of classic six men. You're good enough to start. Yeah, I mean, Dan is Manu Ginobili was the first guy that came to my mind. A guy who. The whole Spurs team, including Pop, knew was good enough to start. And in fact, Pop told me when I wrote my Manu, you know, my big Manu profile a few years back, that he gave Manu the choice. Said, we think this is good, but it's up to you. And he didn't tell Manu this, but whatever he chose, he was going to abide by. He had that much respect for Manu. Iguodala would be the other one just because, again, that was another like, okay, tough conversation, Andre. Like, I really want you to come off the bench. Think Think it rounds out our team. He's, I mean, I had Drew Holiday on my All-NBA team last year, second team All-NBA. To go from that to sixth man of the year would almost be kind of a tribute to how malleable and well-fitting and easily fitting a player he is. Uh, should we should we throw out at least in this conversation, I don't think he's part of this discussion at this stage of his career anymore, but uh, if Chris Paul ends up on the bench for the Warriors, CP sixth man is, is Tim McMahon, loves to term him. Same with Drew. It's like he's already perhaps starting from opening day because of Draymond Green's ankle injury. Just feels like one of those ones that's going to fluctuate back and forth. Um, yeah, he's on He's on the list. These are all – I just went with Norm Powell because I was like, I'm pretty sure he's going to come off the bench the whole year, score a lot of points, blah, blah, blah. Perfectly reasonable. Do we need to talk about Harden? Do you have any unsaid Harden takes, opinions I- – pieces of the thing that are being overlooked. I do have a hardened thought that I, I texted a little bit with Bobby Marks about earlier. So the the part of, you know, you reported on and others over the summer 
the clause in the CBA that has existed for a long period of time. I, I'm pretty sure it got evoked when Gary Payton held out of uh, media day back at 2002 Sonics training camp before he got traded to Milwaukee for Real and la- later that year. So this is not new, but the idea is he can't be away from the team unexcused for more than 30 days because then Philadelphia would have the ability to prevent him from going into free agency. But if Philadelphia's whole plan is to have as much cap space as possible in free agency, having James Harden be a, not be a free agent doesn't actually help them because then they just have to renounce him to create that cap space. I mean, I suppose they would potentially have it as like a plan B that they could hold his rights and not have him allowed to any, you know, negotiate with anyone else. But you know who it would become really valuable for? The LA Clippers, a team that potentially traded for him uh, after those 30 days were up. Is it possible that James Harden considers getting to the 30-day mark actually makes him more likely to get traded? <sighs> wow. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big one. That's a good one. It's a good one. Maybe. I, I would need some time to digest that, KP. That was a good one. Yeah, I've been thinking about that one just in the back of my head that like maybe this isn't actually the deterrent that people thought it was, that it actually helps his chances. So it seems to me, reading between the lines, that Daryl Morey, again, reading Woj's reporting, reading between the lines of other stuff that's out there, having conversations about this, it seems he now wants one of two things for Harden. It's like, give me both your unprotected first-round picks that you can trade, 28 and 30. Maybe I'll let you top three protect the second one or something teensy like that. Teensy, but potentially big. Both of them. Or, okay, fine, I'll take one. But I got to have Terrence Mann atop that and whatever else I get that one pick. The implication being, if you give me both, you, maybe you can keep Mann. We can do it for the expirings. I don't know that that's the case, but reading between the lines, that seems to make some sense to me. Um, and the it's now... Over the weekend, there was a lot of ha-ha, the Clippers being so precious with Terrence Mann. Really, Terrence Mann is the holdup in a deal for James freaking Harden. Um, I actually don't think that's a ridiculous position for the Clippers to take. And I, First of all, I think Terrence Mann's good. I think he's on a good contract. Shot 39% from three last year, 60% from two. He's a, he's a positionally pretty flexible wing. He's not young. People think he's young. He's not. That's part of the reason for the mockery of the Clippers. He's 27. But he's decent. He's on a good contract. He's he's better than decent. He's good. He's on a good contract. He's available and wants to play all the time, which is something the Clippers really value. And the Clippers are like, we're the we're the only game in town right now. Why are, why are we trading this guy who we love for a guy that we know is a moper who tends to have really bad elimination games and then blame everybody else and oh look for the exit door immediately and oh by the way is also set to be a free agent. Why are we doing I like I don't think it's ridiculous of the Clippers to take that stance. I wonder what your take on that is and also a question JJ Redick asked me today on his podcast. Let's say the Clippers get Harden for man. Do you think they can actually win the championship? Ten, yes. Do I think they're actually in the top two tiers of title contention? No, I would still need to see, you know, how Kawhi Leonard and what level Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are playing at. And they they looked pretty good. I saw them 
in the preseason here in Seattle. And I felt like they, they looked like themselves. So that was an encouraging sign, but that, that relates to the other element of this to me, which is if I'm the Clippers, the other reason I'm not in a hurry to make this deal is let's find out how good this team can be this year before we decide to trade a younger player and our tradable draft pick, a tradable draft pick for an older one or, or two tradable draft picks uh, for an older player. Like if this season isn't worth salvaging, then let's not throw bad money after gut. Totally agree. I, I said that on NBA Today last week. Like, I, I want to see, is my team better than expected? And maybe we don't need James Harden. Maybe we just need a, a Malcolm Brogdon or somebody who's not going to cost as much. Or maybe we don't need anybody. Maybe we need just what we have. Or a buyout guy. Although I get, it's harder now for them to sign buyout guys, depending on what their salaries are, pre-existing buyout. Um, or maybe we're just so disappointing Kawhi's hurt in 15 games that it's like, well, okay. I mean, like we just got to figure out the next phase of our franchise. Both of those, um, both of those are, are perfectly reasonable stances to take. I will say the Clippers want Harden. Like it's a real thing. They want Harden. They want him more than they want Malcolm Brogdon. Pretty confident in that. And the fact that they are this interested in Harden, interested enough to throw out, unprotected pick picks whatever it is right whatever the current whatever offer they've thrown out i i think is a vote of slight anxiety at the very least that their team as presently constructed just simply is not good enough to win the title and um which is which is kind of depressing because in a way trading everything for Kawhi Leonard and Paul George was supposed to inoculate you from ever having to trade almost everything again for another player while Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are still on your team. Not not a minor trade. That was in play, right? Not like a small upgrade here and there. But like, okay, here's everything we have left. Pfft, go get me something else. Like that was kind of, I think they hoped like this was the team. This was the team that would get over the hump, right? Sure. Although I, I guess it's interesting if you go back to the summer of 2019, like how long did we think the window would be with Kawhi and PG? Like this is probably about when the window should have been closing either way, right? You know, four years is a long period of time. It is a long NBA. period of time. But I just, at the time it was, man, 28, 29 years old, like home run trade. And I said, like, I think it was a trade that you make again, like despite what we know now. Um, yeah, I, I I just I told JJ like first of all this theoretical that you're presenting where they just get Harden for whatever and they have Harden, George and Kawhi. It's interesting. Like I I'm not uninterested in it. Having Kawhi is kind of like insurance against Harden pooping the bed in game six or seven of a playoff series. It's like, oh you go over there, you're having a case of the Hardens in an elimination game. Give me the ball. I'll do it. I've done it before. Um I just I just find myself as someone who was all in when they built that team. Someone who voted Kawhi MVP in 2017, the year Russ won. Someone who has said over and over again, Paul George is a boss. It predicted his vengeance year in 2021, and he did come through with a vengeance year. I just find myself out of faith. I'm, I'm out of belief that they will ever be healthy at the same time, at the right time, for a prolonged period of time, again, and maybe that's unre- it's not unreasonable. The evidence, you know, is what it is. Maybe it's it's too pessimistic based on recent events. But something about the rapidity with which in the playoffs last year, we went from, oh my God, Kawhi is back. Kawhi is, 
I mean, forget the last two or three months of the season when he was outstanding, one of the five, six best players in the league. The Kawhi in that first two games against Phoenix was like, oh my God, he's just taking the ball from Kevin Durant and dunking like that dude is bad. Oh, he's gone again. I think that wounded my basketball soul. I don't know if I can recover from that as a as a nonpartisan Clippers believer. Yeah, I think that's fair. And and as we talked about the last time I was on, the other element of this is just kind of the atrophy of the the talent around them. And you know, I think that's where there's also an urgency. You know, even if it's not the Harden move to do something, because you know Marcus Morris Senior's expiring contract, unless they just want to save money and try to avoid the second apron. Like they need to convert that into something before the trade deadline because it doesn't look like there's a role for him on this team. It does look like there might be a role for Robert Covington. So, you know, he played terrifically in that game in Seattle as a, as a starter. Breaking news 13 minutes from the extension deadline. Woj reporting Onyeka Akangwu, four years, 62 million with the Atlanta Hawks. Kevin Pelton, you're instant. No time to think about a reaction. It seems reasonable. It's again around what the mid-level exception is going to be and kind of below average starter money at this point. It does seem to, again, ratchet up the urgency for Atlanta to find a trade for Clint Capella to give Onyeka Congo a chance to start. Those are those are my instant reactions. Let's not rush to trade Clint Capella because I got 100 bucks with Tim Bontemps on the line. <laughs> okay. I, again... Bobby and I did this last week. We talked about the mid-level exception as sort of a, a, a dividing line in negotiations, a take-it-or-leave-it line. Akangu took it. He essentially has been a center in the NBA. Any attempt to stretch his range or play him with another center has not worked well, and he's, he's, not, he's an undersized center. I'm still kind of I, – I think this deal could age very, very well for the Hawks or whatever team has Onyeka Kongwa on their team. I think he's really, really good, very switchable on defense, a good roller, has some scoring touch and feel to his game. That's like the next big phase for him. How, how comfortable can he get with the ball in traffic as an elbow facilitator? I think like like that's Isaiah Stewart money, basically. I think he's like a significantly better player now and long-term than Isaiah Stewart. Not to say, again, but that's not to say it's a bad deal because the guy's been a backup and he just made $62 million of guaranteed money. To your point about just what the rising cap environment means for these players, at some point the money is just like, oh, well, I'm going to turn this down. I might play 18 minutes a game this year. I think he'll play more than that. He was on my six-man long list last year and this year. I, maybe both both teams can win these contracts. It can be a wonderful outcome for everybody. I just think that compared to some of the deals that we've seen is like a lock to age really, really well from a team yeah. perspective. I mean, I think there is a little risk, I suppose, if he doesn't you know develop beyond what he is right now at all. But again, he's not yet 23, so the odds of that do seem low. Okay, let's do the stupidest possible thing we could do which is predict right now, Monday, October 23rd, eight days before Halloween, who will make the NBA Finals and who will win the 2024 NBA Championship. Noting, noting that my pick one year ago was the Milwaukee Bucks over the Los Angeles Clippers in the 2023 NBA Finals. I might as well have picked the Washington Generals to beat, I don't even know who, this the Springfield nuclear power plant team in the whatever finals. Like it was a bad, it just didn't work out well. So that was my pick last year. 
Who I'm going to let you. Do you want me to give my pick first, or you want to go first? Well, I just want to note that I also had Milwaukee over Clippers this time of year. Ago, Clearly, so we people were in the should same really boat. take it to the bank, baby. Do you want to go first? Or you want me to go first? I'll, I'll go first. Last last year, I flipped from Boston to Milwaukee over my concern about Robert Williams III's health and Joe Missoula as a first-year head coach. And I don't know those concerns proved unfounded. It just turned out that they got beaten two rounds later by the same team that took Milwaukee out in, in the first round. This year, Boston's top six is strong enough. Joe Mazzulla is in his second year on the job, has a coaching staff now that he has chosen rather than inheriting Ime Udoka's coaching staff. And I think the combination of those two factors, I'm I'm picking Boston to win it over win it all. And I'm going to take them over Denver. I think Den- Denver is interesting to me because I think that they're their ceiling is still quite high, but their floor is much lower than last year. And, and an interesting stat that I was looking at a couple days ago that I, I find, uh, you know, kind of explains sometimes where I differ from other people on teams. If you look at minutes played in the NBA by players on your current roster last season, the two lowest teams are Charlotte and Portland. Makes sense. Rebuilding teams. Uh, then you've got a huge golf, Milwaukee which is interesting. Uh, some other lottery teams, Utah, San Antonio, Dallas, and then Denver is next on that list because of the fact that, you know, the free agents they signed this summer, Justin Holiday, Reggie Jackson, didn't play a ton of minutes in the league last year. They're relying heavily on these guys they've drafted the last couple of years. And I thought as much as everyone focused on Kelvin Booth's quote about, you know, Michael Porter Jr. and Bones Highland and the decision to trade Bones Highland out of Kevin O'Connor's ringer piece last week. To me, the much more interesting thing that Kelvin Booth has been talking about in these stories is that they didn't want to get on that cycle of one-year minimum players who then aren't able to re-sign the next year and you got to go find the next one. That we want to develop our guys that are going to be support players for this terrific starting five for years to come. And I think that is a reasonable and interesting position but it also leaves you without much of a way out if those guys don't hit this year. So I I think the Denver floor is lower, but I still am picking them in the West because I think the ceiling is high, high and the ceiling is what matters for this particular exercise. Well, Kevin, for the second straight year, we are picking the same NBA finals with the same outcome, which means Boston is screwed. Denver is screwed. And God only knows who's going to win because I'm picking the Celtics over the Nuggets in the finals. Um, Our apologies to both fan bases. Look, I I don't really need to sell you on why. I think think there are four inner circle contenders. These are two of them. The others are Milwaukee and Phoenix. Um, A couple of things. Repeating is really hard. It's a rare thing. Not that rare, but pretty rare. Since Jordan, the teams that have repeated have been, have had, one, if not two, of the top 15 players of all time on their teams. So that's Shaq and Kobe, then Kobe with Pau Gasol in the second repeat, three-peat repeat. LeBron, along with two Hall of Famers and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh, and actually Ray Allen, another Hall of Famer, throwing him in too. Um, and then the Warriors, who had Steph Curry and Kevin Durant when they repeated in a four-star team only made possible by a one-time fluky spike in the salary cap that allowed them to sign Durant 
we had never seen four all NBA level players really in their primes on the same team that fit like that before. They were essentially unbeatable when healthy. And yet, even they got pushed to game seven in their second year together by the Rockets. The high wire act of the heat repeat is well known with the Ray Allen shot. Like it's just hard to repeat. I mentioned two of the top 15, one of the top 15. That's where Jokic is. Jokic is there now. And if you don't think he's there because of accumulated stats compared to some of these other guys, he's only 29 years old, that's fine. That He's going there. That's where he's going to be. That's the stratosphere he's going to live in. That's the floor. He's that good. He and Murray are that good together that get your concerns. I'm a little worried about Bruce Brown gone. I'm a little worried about Jeff Green gone. I'm a little worried about the young guys that they're counting on. I just think if that dude is that dude and he's healthy, they can do it. But it's a tall order. It's a tall order for any team. I think Boston has been building to this. We know what their team is. We don't need to belabor it. It's not like I don't feel great about the pick. If you're asking me field or Boston, I'm thinking field. I'm not even thinking about it. The other thing, I'd be interested in your take on this. I've I've heard and, and read a lot over the last few weeks about how people are surprised that like no team really seems to have made any moves to address Jokic. No team seems to have have acquired the kind of players who can deal with Jokic or design their off-seasons around, well, we got to figure out Jokic. I actually think that's not the case. I think people are, are arguing that because no team went out and signed like some big banger galoot type to like deal with him in the post and whatever. Like that does that guy doesn't exist. Jokic is just going to be an unsolvable offensive player. To me, what Boston... Phoenix, and even Milwaukee did, but particularly Boston and Phoenix, is absolutely aimed directly at Jokic, which is this. The only way to beat Denver 4 out of 7 and the way to go at Jokic is make him defend as much space as many times within the same possession and within the game as possible. Stretch him out as far as you can on defense. Make him, make him go up to the screen, back, up to the screen, back, and just hope you score enough points that you have enough pull-up jump shooters and the formula didn't work for the Suns last year. So they exchanged a guy that the Nuggets were happy to shoot pull-up twos in Chris Paul because they thought he's old enough and slow enough that we can contest them and he won't even get them off clean every time. And if he's shooting long twos, that means those other dudes over there aren't shooting at all. For Bradley Beal, who's got more juice, more athleticism, more speed, the Celtics are obviously all in on a five-out team construction. To me, that's... You have to go at him from that direction, hope you score a lot, and win the the non-Jokic minutes by a significant amount every game. What is your take on that? That's been my feeling looking at this offseason. Yeah, you could add Milwaukee to that too. I mean, they clearly prioritized offense over defense, trading Drew Holiday and and everything else for Damian Lillard. Damian Lillard was the star on a team that beat Denver in the playoffs, although it was not his finest series. It was CJ McCollum who was doing a lot of that work in the mid-range in that series. Uh, He played on a team that gave Denver a lot of trouble offensively in the 2021 playoffs before they lost to Phoenix. Like, I think that fits the mold, and it's really more about, you know, offense than it is outscoring the nuggets keeping up with them offensively than it is about stopping them and yeah what are you gonna you know sign greg kite so that he can give six fouls against Jokic? this is not shack in 1993 or even shack in 2000 like there's there is no stopping Jokic. i i think it's safe to say and that you know outscoring him is the only way to do it and i think boston has the size on the wing to attack Jamal Murray 
in a way that uh, the Heat maybe were not quite able to. Certainly, I think the Nuggets understood that Miami was a bit of a friendlier opponent for them in the finals than Boston would have been when that series went to seven uh, after the Derek White put back. Um, but look, I mean, I think Phoenix has a shot. Milwaukee has a shot. And below that, like, how how many teams do you – how many teams – where's your line of, like, below this team – I would actually be really surprised if one of these teams won the championship. So for me, it's so for me, it's like those inner four. I would be a little surprised if the champion came from outside those four, but not a lot surprised if the champion were the Lakers or Golden State. That's six. If the champion is not one of those six, I think I'd be pretty damn surprised. I think Philadelphia, if they find the right hardened trade. I think they they still belong in that group because of the fact that you've got that, you know, MVP caliber player is the centerpiece. Wow. Philly optimism. It's a great place. And we're being disrespectful to Miami. And I don't mean that facetiously. Like this is disrespectful to Miami, who just seems to be in the conference finals of the finals every year. What? I, why? How? What are we supposed to do with this Heat team who loses two starters, continually outperforms expectations in the playoffs? I keep saying this. Four years, two finals, average wins prorated over an 82-game season, 48 wins. That's what the Kings won last year. It's They just haven't been I, – I just don't remember a team like this where there's this huge dissonance between their regular season performance and their postseason performance. I don't know what to do with them. I I feel the same way. I, you know, have all but given up picking up my picking Miami playoff series. But I do think like – the series against the Denver against Denver, the finals last year showed that there is a level that when Miami gets there, they don't have the firepower to keep up. And that's why they were trying to get Damian Lillard and they didn't. And maybe they will get a star at some point, but it seems very unlikely to happen before the 2024 playoffs. So I, I would be I would be shocked if they won the championship, despite the fact that they were in the finals a year ago. Kevin Pelton, uh, we got win projections. We got stuff on all 30 teams. What else we have coming this week in the uh, opening week of the season? Uh, I think I'm contributing to some group files. We're watching Victor Wambanyama's first game, so very excited for that. And uh, we'll continue to hype up his defensive player of the year chances, I suppose. It's going to be an exciting week. Uh, that He plays Wednesday uh, against the Mavericks. That game is on a little network called ESPN. Uh, opening week is here. Kevin Pelton, thank you for uh, lending us your time and making outlandish predictions that will come back to make both of us look stupid. Uh, Celtics Nuggets apologies uh, it's not going to go well for you Kevin thank you sir always a pleasure thanks for having me